I got my first Dhamma lessons straight away when I was leaving. First travels after three and a half years and due to uh, COVID lockdowns, can't leave Australia. So the first time I traveled internationally since mid-2019. I'm getting uh, a little bit excited about it all and then particular packing. I'm not sure, are you good in packing when you travel? I know that some people, they can just throw a few things together in 10 minutes and off they go. Whereas I can get a little bit obsessed about it and rubbing and then the cold. I'm very sensitive to cold. and can be really cold sometimes in uh, the north of Thailand. Uh, Chiang Mai, Ajahn Kantiko's place is a thousand meter elevation. And if you're there in January and you're unlucky, it can be a real cold spell. And even non-achart, and then uh, maybe showering with cold water on top of it. So I got all this uh, cold weather gear, which in the end I didn't need. And then uh, gifts, like going to many monasteries, extending invitation to Kuba Ajans to visit here. So you want to bring a nice gift, and they take space. And then uh, some monks were giving me some uh, gifts to carry and then don't forget anything, and then keep within the 20 kilos. And then my mind getting quite uh, engaged a little bit, uh, maybe even too engaged with uh, the whole question of what to carry. And then they lost my luggage on the, on the transit in KL. And when I arrived in Bangkok, and waiting at the luggage carousel, and nothing came. And I didn't even have my bowl and my sangati because I had packed it in the check-in luggage. And no problem at all. That was a lesson. So I arrived now only with my little shoulder bag. And of course, in a Buddhist country, Thailand, uh, Lumpur Sumedho sometimes calls it a bhikkhu's paradise. It was like that, not having any of my luggage, I was so obsessed in my mind. I was worried that I just forget one tiny thing. But then the lesson is, even if you don't have the whole 20 kilo thing, it's still okay. And it came the next day evening, it arrived anyhow. But until then, in Dhammavam, they could just provide me a spare bowl. The Sangati I didn't need, so I just gave it up for the time being. And the food I'll be getting anyhow. So it was a beautiful experience, as a deep Dhamma lesson. It's not just the luggage we carry on a journey, but also all the mental baggage we carry around. And we somehow convince that it's really important and we can get quite obsessed about it. And we insist on carrying that. Old grudges, old resentments, old traumas. Isn't it? And it's amazing why we feel that we have to carry that with us. And then also then all the attachments we have. Attachments to possessions, attachments to a person's loved ones. But this is not luggage which we check in at the airline, but this is luggage direct in our mind. And a huge burden, and if you don't have it, you may be much better off, and it's all okay. So my first stopover was at Dhammawam, the little place in Bangkok offered to Lumpur Sumedho. And it's just a house, a few floors, and then simple rooms where monks, when they travel, through Bangkok and I can stay for a short time. But straight away for the breakfast, I met a couple of senior monks, Adan Chattamalo, who I know quite well, the senior monk in Motodaya was there, Adan Medino, a Dutch monk I know, and so on. And uh, right at the meal, having 10 monks, chanting Anumodana for Dana and meeting old friends. And I felt very happy straight away being back in Songa, meeting old Kalyanamitas. 
And, and that was even more so the case in Wat Banana Chant. One thing I really enjoyed in having this informal contact with uh, many senior monks, abbots, retired abbots, and funny enough, even my fellow Australian abbots, Ajahn Vabadamo from Bodhisattva Sydney was there, and Ajahn Nyanadipo from Bodhipala Adelaide. And although I know them, and sometimes we talk, and I just visited Bodhisattva, I had been at Bodhipala, but the difference is they are not on duty. Ajahn Kevali is on duty, Nihisi Abbot, and Ajahn Seripanyo, Ajahn Suketo helping them, or helping him, and obviously they are very busy. But meeting these abbots when they are not on duty, is really nice and really relaxing. So I had, uh, I think, four hours chatting with them and uh, catching up, and all the news, having some Dhamma discussion, which often when you're in the monastery, it may focus on practical things. So it was very beautiful sitting there in the evening, sharing some of the cup of tea, piece of chocolate, and catching up with various senior monks. Ajahn Kemanando, who I stayed with in Vimokavam, hadn't seen him for a long time. Ajahn Amaro, Ajahn Rutinavo from Hartbridge Monastery, where I plan to visit end of May. Ajahn Kemasevi from Switzerland. Managed to pay respects to Ajahn Yanadamo, Ajahn Vajiro. Abbot Sumida Varma, where we go in May. And normally for my character, I really like living in a smaller place like Damagiri. Small, not so much the acreage. We have 85 acres in the national park next door, but a small community. And usually we have just three monks, four. Sometimes we had two. And I find that very agreeable for my personal character, having it more quiet lots of solitude, less issues if you have less people. But there is also the aspect that we are belonging to the oldest continuously operating institution, organization, association, corporation, whatever you want to call it, the Bhikkhu Sangha, continuously working on the same constitution the Buddha has originally given it. And to be part of that. And if you just live here and with another two or three monks, that is not quite so apparent. But if one goes to one of the Buddhist countries, and we had 99 monks for the last party mocker in the old Uposata Hall in Wat Chat, you get the very strong feeling of Sangha. I get the very strong feeling that this is a global Sangha, particularly our sub-tradition, our lineage. I meet people from all over the world, from all kinds of different cultures and languages, and we can live together, we can cooperate together. We are sharing the same goals and aspirations of developing bhavana and freeing the heart from dukkha. And to experience that in that setting, that strength, uh, I managed to record one Pavita chanting with more than 100 monks chanting, and many of the most senior monks of our tradition participating, and a high percentage of all the abbots of the Western monasteries, and also several of the best known big uh, abbots of the most known big monasteries in Thailand. We managed to upload that on the podcast for the new year. It was only recorded now with my phone next to me. I'm still quite happy with the results. A very sonorous sound with these more than 100 very experienced monk, monks chanting uh, Pavita together. And then uh, to experience that in the cultural context of uh, an old and well-established in the traditional Buddhist culture, where you can have such big congregations of the Sangha and the support just comes in. 
and people are very happy and they came from all over and they're supporting that big building, supporting the ceremony, supporting the large congregation of Sangha. This is the first condition the Buddha mentioned for non-decline of the bhikkhus, non-decline of the bhikkhu Sangha, the monks, that they should meet frequently. Abhinmahang actually means literally like all the time. But of course, you also need time in solitude, but there should be very regular meetings. And the second condition is when the Sangha meets, that they should conduct the business in harmony. Whatever Sangha business they have, Sangha Kama to do that in harmony. So they come together in harmony, conduct business in harmony, and then they depart in harmony and with uh, feelings now of friendship and loving kindness and you know, the conviction of sharing the same uh, aspiration of realizing the Dhamma. So it was very important that we had a big physical meeting again to maintain the the bond, the closeness of our international lineage in particular. I was very impressed by the architecture of the new Oposata Hall. Again, I managed to put a video on our YouTube if you have seen that. And already on the uh, first evening after arrival, I walked around a little bit and I came across the new Oposata Hall in the evening. And Ajahn Kivali and the architect have done an excellent job and also the lighting arrangement at night time, no, extremely beautiful, not blinding and not these uh, fluorescent tubes or this very cold light, which they often have, no, but uh, LEDs, but with a more mellow yellowish light and uh, it's just a stunning beauty. He used the first Uposata Hall established in uh, Ubon province some 250 years ago as a model. But they changed the materials. The original is from wood, but that doesn't last so long, there's fire danger. So it's all in concrete, but uh, done in a way that some of it actually looks like wood. You don't have a feeling it's concrete. And of course the floors and so on are uh, highly brushed and polished granite and marble, very beautiful, and completely open on all sides. So you have got an, a breeze coming through, and even in, in hot climate, you're always open and receiving a, a cooling breeze. So I can't really find any any fault with that building. Samantha Pasadika, like one commentary is called, you know, all around pleasing, outside, inside, from the front, from the back, disabled access. And we could even use it you know, for the intended purpose. Because the whole point of a Oposata Hall is you know, that you can do the Oposata and that you can do even more important uh, ordinations. And we had a very inspiring ordination happening shortly after because the father of one of our Western monks who had even been here, Ajahn Nando, once visited, and his father got ordained in his late 60s, just a temporary ordination. And he did a pretty good job in reciting the Pali in his quite elderly. But uh, when I inquired, because I noticed he did it pretty well, he has been training for that three-quarter of a year. For, for nine months he has been training you know, to get the chanting right. And for years he had that aspiration to be once in robes. And the first time I can remember that uh, a father of any of the Western monks actually you know, ordained. So it was a really uh, inspiring moment. Ajahn Sibi Panyo got the COVID just three days before the event, which was a little bit a disaster also for Ajahn Kivali, as Ajahn Kivali was more doing the 
executive, the meta organization, the external and the important uh, Sangha officials and so on. Whereas Ajahn Sivipani was handling more like you know, the practical organizing of getting things ready you know, together with the other monks. And now he had to be isolated. He usually walks right in front of me for arms round. So in the morning when he suddenly told me, oh, I'm having this really chills and I'm getting goosebumps, I'm really cold, I'm not feeling well. I gave him some of the ginseng I carried, but then he had a COVID test and turned positive and had to isolate. And then I volunteered to do his bowl because in isolation he can't go to the arms round. So I would fill the bowl for him, uh, quickly wash over and then go back into my own bowl. And they're very inspiring how uh, ascetic he lives. And he comes from a very wealthy family and his father is the builder of the uh, Petronas Towers in Kuala Lumpur, which were the highest building when they opened in the late 90s. So he could uh, disrobe any time and uh, go to a jet set lifestyle. But he's doing the opposite. And one reason I wanted to do this bowl also, now hoping to impose a strict rest and recuperation on him because I was also worried sometimes the COVID can be a little bit stronger. And he had quite some fever. He said it was like dengue, which he had some seven months ago. But he still insisted to stay under his mosquito net, just under a glot. And so this... Uh, monk now coming from billionaire's background and insisting to live on a pile of straw and a mat under a mosquito net and even when he has a high fever and is really sick. I was uh, really impressed by that. I found it was really admirable. And then I also had another fringe benefit and when I bought him the bowl we always had time to chat. I inquired how he's doing, but also encouraging him and, yeah, you'll be fine again. And checking out whether there's any danger. And I just had COVID myself uh, two months earlier, so I wasn't worried about catching it. And other people might feel a bit concerned about contact. We kept good distance and had a good chat. And he showed me some photos now how he lives in Daudam and how he spent Wasser there in this old shed-like structure with some additional plastic uh, plastic sheets to keep the worst rain out and again just on a platform under a mosquito net. And it's beautiful and that uh, one senior monk is maintaining the Aryavangsa, the tradition of the uh, noble ones in terms of uh, simplicity, frugality, living in seclusion. Although on the other hand, he's also highly capable and if there's big events, he comes and helps out. He will actually stand in for Ajahn Kivali because there's a tradition in Thailand, once the abbot has built the Oposata Hall, he should not spend the next wasa, the next rains retreat there. And I think it's actually a very wise tradition because you put usually lots of effort into that. And it's the most elaborate and beautiful and usually most expensive building in the whole monastery. And if one does that and puts so much effort into that, then there's also attachment. That is actually a general rule. The more effort we put into something, the more we're usually attached. And I think this is one reason that usually parents are much more attached to children than the other way around. Because you just invest so much into them, in care, in devotion, in looking after, in financial resources, in time, energy. And watch that. Anything where we put in so much effort, big identification, it becomes like me, this whole sense of identification, me, mine, self, is generated from putting effort into it. And the oppositor usually has that. And it's great. And then the moment you have built it, then you're supposed to leave and spend the wasa somewhere else. 
I think Ajahn Kevali will be doing that, you know, honoring that tradition, and Ajahn Sibi will stand in for him. So I think you will have Ajahn Sibi Panyo as the abbot when you go back to uh, Vatmanana Chant. So you get both experiences, first at Ajahn Kevali and now Ajahn Sibi Panyo. And what was fascinating for me, you know, I was walking between two worlds, with the king coming, the monastery was extremely busy. They uh, put tar on all the um, sand roads in the monastery. So now you have got these 10 meter wide roads going through the monastery fully tarred. And even the access road until the next highway, completely newly done. They were working and tarring and these big steamroll machines going all night until the day before. And then there are many uh, people coming, visiting, many monks visiting, so quite a kind of a carnival atmosphere almost. And then being in that, and then filling the bowl and walking back to the monk who is just sitting under his mosquito net and upholding simplicity, frugality, and asceticism on a, on a mat on some straw with a high fever. Wonderful uh, combination. I got a chance to see Lumpur Liam and I used a good argument and Ajahn Kivali being extremely busy so I felt it's a little bit difficult to ask him can you organize a lift to Wat Nong Papong that I can see Lumpur Liam in case anyone doesn't know Lumpur Liam is the successor of Ajahn Chah Ajahn Chah is the founder of our tradition and Lumpur Liam is the successor as the abbot of Ajahn Chah's monastery, Wat Nong Papong. And he's also another leading monk of our whole international lineage. And he's also busy, so you have to find the right time. But it's traditional that we pay respects and ask forgiveness from spiritual teachers for New Year. Both Thailand and Sri Lanka, they're usually doing that for their New Year. Sri Lanka, you offer the beetle. Not being a Westerner and also not being there for a Thai New Year, but for Western New Year, I asked Adan Kivali and I said, oh, it would be really nice to ask forgiveness, pay respects to Lumpur Liam. I didn't see him for four or five years due to COVID. And very kindly, and he took some time and was only him, his Upatag, and me, and we got more than an hour with Lumpur Liam paying respects, asking forgiveness, inviting him to Damagiri. <laughs> and it looks that was successful. Uh, once it turned out he's moving, he also got an invitation now to New Zealand. And what I published in the NAS newsletter is already outdated. So the latest I heard is likely here from the 13th of March to the 19th, three nights. That is Monday to Thursday, but I imagine he may arrive after the meal on Monday. So he's probably here the Tuesday, Wednesday, and maybe the meal is still on Thursday, 13th to 19th, no, no, yeah, to 16th, yeah, 13th to 16th, yeah, better I'm counting than me, no? <laughs> and helps to have monks with PhD. You get counting problems. <laughs> so I was extremely happy. And uh, when it all works out, and he can really come here. Would already be Lumpur Liam's fourth visit. And I'm extremely happy uh, to give an opportunity, uh, contribute giving an opportunity for members in our community and, and anyone in Brisbane to and have that contact with one of the most outstanding monks. I could ask him a few interesting questions. For the royal ceremony, it is uh, customary and usually required that all the Chaukuns, the monks who have got these high titles, have to wear the Rajaniyam color because 
couple of decades ago, when the king had an invitation to important monks, they would come and they would all have very different style of robes and particular colors. So it looks a little bit hatchy, sketchy, and there's one monk with that very bright and fire truck and very dark and in between. And then they, uh, the king, as Lung Poliam explained when I asked about that, that the king inquired from the Sangha what would be the correct color. And very wisely, the Sangha they left the decision to the king and said, no, you just research and find out yourself what color the Buddha prescribed. Anyway, so the uh, late king, Bhumipurna, came up with that Rajaniyam color, but it's usually noticeably brighter than the color we are wearing in our tradition, the forest tradition, which is actually very similar to when I ordained with my preceptor what they were wearing. But for the royal ceremonies, if someone is a Chaukunya, they are expected to wear this bright color and also to tie their Sangatina with this additional belt. And I was very amazed to see that Lumpur Liam was the only monk who didn't do that. He had the guts not to go into this royal ceremony, this super big thing that everyone has to follow 100% choreography. If we were told that... Uh, we will be in a holding area from 4 p.m. and the quite elderly and the health is not very good. And uh, it's unclear whether the king may come later and you may have to sit there for hours without being able even to go to the toilet. So you only had a cup of coffee at noon because it also doesn't look good if you fall asleep waiting there on camera and so on as a senior monk. And uh, then he got dehydrated because he didn't dare to drink much because else you have to go to Thailand. And then he, he caught, partially lost his voice and then he was assigned the task now of doing the three refuges and precepts and so on. But in any case, and so we were in this uh, holding area and then normally the palace they had kind of taken over and would organize everything. But it was actually Lumpur Liam who at some stage just started walking off to the Oposata Hall to our appointed seats. Quite amazingly, he actually set the timing there. And when C started moving, everyone went there. And it was all okay, it all flowed. But he was the only one of the Chao Kuns honoring our tradition and honoring his teacher, Ajahn Chan, who would wear these robes. And because it stood out so much, and I asked him personally about that. And he just explained to me that he only has the three robes. So what else is he going to wear? This is a traditional practice, and he seems to be doing that. This is what the Buddha prescribed for the monks, that you should have three robes. And he has got them, and this is what he wears. And he said if anyone complains or asks him, then he would just say, no, this is my three robes, and I don't have any other ones, and how could you criticize him for that? And as an acknowledgement of the you know, royal ceremony, he just put that color belt around his, uh, around his um, stomach to hold the Sangati, you know, to acknowledge you know, that had that brighter color. But I was very impressed, I found it very beautiful that he maintained the forest tradition and the color of robes of his own teacher, Ajahn Shah, and our tradition, even in such an important ceremony. And I was amazed that even when the palace was organizing anything, he actually set the timing how it really started and how we went to our places. It's one quality I really love in Lung Poliam, Kalanyu knowing the right time. His timing is impeccable. And I never see him in a rush or hurrying. Do you know that, pushing for time? Getting to Damagiri in time for the Amsterdam and driving too fast, or rushing and almost running and other occasions at work. I notice now I often end up rushing and hurrying. And although I wash and hurry, I still end up coming too late occasionally. 
And even when I wash and hurry, or feel time pressure and then come too late, I still may not get everything done which I intend doing. Can someone relate to that? Do you? I can relate to that. Ne? And the amazing thing is I've never ever seen Lumpur Liam rushing or hurrying or appearing under time pressure ever at all. Even if there's a huge event at Wat Nongpapong, even if he is in uh, monasteries far away from his own home base in a different environment, in a different country, I never see him hurrying and I never see him being late. And the timing is impeccable, exactly right. And it also appears, as far as I can judge, that he gets everything done which he is trying to do. And he does that without a clock, without a watch. Now, most monks, we don't have a watch around our wrist usually. It's not considered appropriate for monks, but usually we carry one on, on the belt. And nowadays, most monks have a mobile phone which they carry in their bag and they can check time there. But he doesn't have a mobile phone and he doesn't carry a watch on his belt. And the timing is impeccable and always flows without rush, without hurry and completely relaxed. I wish I could do that. <laughs> yes, that is another quality which is very outstanding in Lung Polyam, uh, UPECA, the equanimity. And that is very helpful to see that someone can be completely relaxed and equanimous even in the middle of you know, huge events. And quite naturally, you know, Lung Bo, even the Lung Po, so Ajahn Kivali was obviously you know, quite stressed out organizing that in such a big event and so important. But to see you know, that uh, someone can be completely at ease and equanimous, not just sitting in a remote cave, but being in charge and responsible at a gigantic event. Again, I'm not sure what is your experience, but if we have uh, our rope offering and then it's raining cats and dogs all day and we are visiting monks, maybe 208 monks, I tend to get a little bit nervous about it, trying to get it all right. I'm not sure when you throw a big party or a big event for 100 people, whether you're completely relaxed and equanimous, inviting a large group of people for the meal in the evening and preparing. Are you completely equanimous and relaxed? And Lumpur Liam, there are thousands of monks for a big one and uh, more than 10,000 lay people and events going for a whole week and live cameras and live drones, uh, completely equanimous. It's wonderful it, to see that as an inspiration that this is possible, that one can have that liberation in one's heart, that you can go through that and with that freedom. My flight to Bangkok was together with Ajahn Jivaku, an American monk who is taking on at least for the time being, and seeing how it works out, the new place in India. There has already been a city center in New Delhi, which has already been associated with Wat uh, Banana Chart, but now they bought property. It's about two hours' drive north of New Delhi in Haryana, and right at the northern border of Haryana with uh, Himachal Pradesh. So it is a very northern edge of the Gangetic Plain, just where about the first hills come up and then going into the Himalayas. And they have uh, ancient stupas and ancient monastery ruins right next to their property. So I was also very happy that uh, our tradition is now developing uh, Forest Monastery in the very country where the Dhamma came from, where the Buddha lived and taught. 
And as Nana Chant has taken that on as a sub-branch, and there are many monks, and I think it will take off quite well. In fact, one Indian monk has already got three Vasa and will be going back, also working with Ajahn Jivako. And Ajahn Jivako is physically really tough. He once did, when he stayed in Buddha Bodhivana, he did a two-dong walking all the way from Melbourne to Sydney, just on arms round, a genuine arms round every day. Melbourne to Sydney, and he arrived fine. So he may have the physical robustness for India. You need to have a quite a robust body there. Was a group of Indians joining for the event, and getting inspired. Then I visited Bad Ampavan, that is Lumpur Jandi's monastery. And that one was fascinating because Lumpur Jandi ended up not being there. I spent only two nights and he was for some big event in another monastery. And I was amazed how much you still get from the teacher and founding abbot being in his monastery even if he isn't there because his kind of character and energy and personality and uh, dhamma is kind of pervading the atmosphere. And one aspect I found particularly strong is pasadhi in Pali, meaning tranquility. Pasadi is a crucial quality in the, in the development of samadhi. The usual sequence how the Buddha describes the development of samadhi and jhana, starting with gladness, paramodja. The gladness, for example, from offering requisites to the sangha, offering food. Now that is one way you know, of developing paramodja, gladness in the heart keeping precepts, being generous, and reflecting on your generosity, listening to Dhamma, now that can also give great gladness, Paramatra. And reflecting on your generosity, rejoicing in the generosity of all your Kayanamitas, your fellow Dhamma fervors who are joining you in offering. And once there's gladness in the heart, then rapture, pity arises. And when the mind experiences rapture, the body experiences pasadi, tranquility. That is that bodily calm, relaxation and ease, which allows you to sit all night meditation, 12 hours, without destroying your knees or without having a backache next day. You may have wondered, now, how do some monks or even lay people now can they meditate in so many hours without damaging their knees and so on. Now, my understanding would be it's mostly another Kaya Pasadi, complete, the body is so relaxed and tranquil that you can do that. When once the body is tranquil, the mind will experience bliss. And the blissful mind unifies in samadhi. That's a really important sequence we have to keep in mind. This is how you get into samadhi. Not by sitting and pushing, pushing, pushing. That usually doesn't work. Forcing the mind. But by being so happy that the body is completely at ease, rapturous, and then the mind blissed out with that tranquil, relaxed body. And then the mind unifies quite easily. I mean, maybe not on that level of pasadina, but this feeling of the calm, quietness, tranquility was really strong at Ajandandis, even in his absence. Next, Ajan Anan at Vatmapjan. It was an interesting experience because I think it's the most high-tech monastery I've seen in terms of live streaming. Actually, I counted um, eight microphones, I mean really 
high-tech professional microphones, big ones, two cameras and seven screens when they did the evening puja and dhamma talk live streaming on the Oposata day. And some screens, uh, uh, multiple square meters big. And he has got little uh, groups coming in on Zoom. So often there's a whole um, community actually physically meeting and then coming in on the Zoom. And he was doing that already a few years before COVID when not everyone was doing Zoom. So it was also interesting to see a, a monastery with that facilities and that technological expertise. Now they have one monk who is a computer expert who is organizing that all. And then many others supporting. But altogether, I also felt reasonably satisfied. Now, I mean, trying to compete with that is obviously impossible in a small place like this one. <laughs> we have got one screen here and one mic. But now I think the results are not too bad in comparison. And I think that even has some drawbacks when you're physically there. It's great now, for all the people joining live and later on video. That is really well done. But if you are physically there, it's already a little bit too much. This is why I try to keep the camera here a little bit out of view rather than having it right in front of me. And uh, so that my main focus in is still talking to the people being here physically. Doesn't look quite so nice on the video. But I'm so old now that I'm not looking nice anyhow. So it's quite okay to have the camera a little bit further away. <laughs> And, but fascinating to see that really well done high tech. Uh, then uh, Lumpur Tongdang's monastery. And I think that may have been one of my happiest times. It was quite short, but one of my happiest times ever in Thailand. Everything was just white. The climate was just perfect. Not cold, not hot. Nice and sunny. And the best, of course, Lumpur Tongdeng and his metta. And I think uh, it pervades uh, the whole monastery. One disciple of Lumpur Van, a very famous, one of the most famous monks in Thailand in the 1980s, when he passed away, maybe a million people for his funeral. The king had a kuti there in the monastery for occasional retreats. But he hardly did any uh, formal teachings. But this uh, teacher himself said that when he stayed there, they often had to share kutis. There wasn't enough space. And several monks had to share one kuti. But never any conflict because Lumpur Van's metana was so strong that they all lived in harmony. And it felt like that at Lumpur Tongdeng. And I was amazed as a newcomer, not speaking Thai, and ordained and now living in a different Nikaya, how much I felt a part of the Sangha and accepted. And the six other more senior monks to me, you know, I felt I really got on with them, even without Thai. Of course, it helped that Ajahn Kantiku speaks Thai and translated for me and checked me in. He's a disciple of Lumpur Tongdeng and... Ajahn Metiko from Motodaya, by coincidence, arrived on the same day. And he was the first Western disciple ordained by Lumpur Tongdeng. So that also uh, helped in making me feel really at home. And then we got in a, a three-hour session, Dhamma discussion with Lumpur Tongdeng. And although he is so sweet, and he is so kind and sweet and gentle, and everyone loves him. I think it's almost impossible not to like Lumpur Tongdeng. But what he talked about was Dukkha Vedana meditation and encouraging us to sit six hours unmoving and investigate the Dukkha Vedana to develop wisdom. I was quite intrigued how someone who's doing such a really tough practice and enduring so much pain on the other hand, it has got such strong matter and such a natural likability and friendliness around him. Admittedly, it's not my favorite meditation object. So I enjoyed the 
other thing he talked about more, and he really recommended doing the Itipiso as a mantra. Itipiso Bhagava Odahang Sammasambuddho Vicha Chadana Sampano Sugato Lokavidu Anuttaro Purisadhamma Sarati Satandiva Manusanang Buddho Bhagavati Do you occasionally do that 108 times? Longpa Tongdeng strongly recommends it. Now just repeating, 108 times is a good one, that takes quite a while. And he said it's a most powerful mantra because these are the exact words the Buddha himself was using to describe himself, to describe not just himself, but the qualities shared by all Tathagatas, by all Buddhas. The Buddha's own words, the exact definition, a short summary of the most outstanding qualities of all Buddhas. Not if we recite that, Nisa, that is really powerful. He shared that once in his earlier years when he practiced in remote places and I think one cave, he got a little bit harassed by one uh, ghost or yaka. And he said it was over when he started itipiso, and by so it was already gone. So the ghost or the, the yaka couldn't, couldn't handle it, no, even, even just itipiso, and then it was already but probably they also had a very strong mind that the mental energy was immediately generated in his own mind just by starting the mantra. He shared another fascinating story of one outstanding Ajahn who died from cancer, but he didn't take treatment. And when he got into the critical stage, he asked his monks to tie him against a tree sitting upright so that he could continue meditating, sitting upright in meditation posture and while dying from terminal cancer. So they did that and, and, and he, he died tied against a tree and sitting upright meditating. Next was uh, Rankantiko's place, very beautiful, very remote, only a small Karin hill tribe village, and a, a very beautiful way of living, a little bit like Ajahn Sirupanyo, living a very traditional, remote monk's life, the three monks in harmony, developing bhavana. Vatoi Monko Satan. Rankantiko will actually be coming back next month. Good news as well. And I finally seen this hermitage, thousand meter high, quite remote. You have to move from the normal taxi to a four-wheel drive. And then unless you carry your luggage for the last kilometer or so, the only transport is by a motorcycle, you know, a, a little scooter, because there's no access for even a four-wheel drive to the hermitage. It's only a little track. And then Ajahn uh, Achalo Anandagiri, unbelievably beautiful. A whole monastery built in uh, Nepalese style in bricks. He has got these special reddish, beautiful reddish color bricks, very ornamental, and every detail. And a really beautiful, every Buddha statue, every Bodhisatta. He likes his Bodhisattas and Kuan Yin. Chinese Kuan Yin, and he has got an Indian-style Buddha Rupa, where he really succeeded in uh, getting the Thai artist doing it to execute a genuine Indian style. Fantastic, inspiring. And the second monk in this place, which is so beautiful and has such beautiful facilities, very ascetic again, he just lives only under a mosquito net. And then he has got a, a straw kuti, which he occasionally uses when the weather is not too difficult under the mosquito net. Ajahn Sunando, I was very impressed by the, his practice of frugality in Salt
I could continue a long time, but I don't want to overtax your patience and maybe open up if there's any questions or any comments. Yes, that was also fantastic. I felt like a real VIP. I feel so happy in having a senior monk because they don't have monks in their center, only visiting. And they have visiting monks, but they don't have a resident monk. It's also not easy to stay there long term because this Banda Uttama Vihava is a smack right in the city. So there's quite a bit of sound and noise and quite a bit of activities. But it's quite suitable, and they have a good facilities and a very good room, large room with everything you can ask for as a monk. So they were very happy having me there. They were very happy that they could offer dharma every day. It's amazing that they didn't perceive that as a burden. And for the few days I stayed, I noticed the number were actually increasing. There were more people coming every day for offering dharma because they really liked it. Yes, I also went to SBS. And uh, it's unbelievable what he has achieved there in about four years. So Sasana Raka Buddhist Sanctuary was founded by Venerable Agacheta, Bande Agacheta, uh, maybe 15 years ago, and was meant to be the main training monastery for Malaysian Theravada monks. But it never fully took off. There were always not many monks and not staying. And then uh, he retired and one of his disciples took over for a while. And now Venerable Ayodhamika came in. And it's a flourishing training monastery. He has got monks coming from all over the world. He had a uh, Russian, Czech, American, Canadian... Uh, Austrian coming, um, uh, German, had a very nice German Uppertag. And his oldest disciple are only four Vasana. And I think it's a premier place you know, for getting a very rounded training. He has experience in all three Buddhist countries. And he has got a very uh, comprehensive training program where they get uh, the teachings and discussion on vineyard, details of the rules on suttas, sutta readings, Pali studies, meditation, different methods and systems, um, practical skills, uh, sewing and preparing requisites, um, the chanting, the morning puja, but also solitude, because they have the interesting system of having two weeks scheduled, Monday to Friday scheduled, and then only Saturday, Sunday free, and then two weeks, basically only meditation. And quite an interesting arms round. Down the hill and back up before you eat. And I would say back up is like walking from the gate to the kuti where I'm staying, or say to the top. And then imagine you're right back at the gate and do it a second time. That is a climb they have every morning and in the, in the very high humidity. But I think it's actually great you know, for keeping the sangha healthy. You have some exercise and some sweating every day. And Venerable Damika, we're using the Pali term usually there, um, he is exceptional in his willingness and uh, ability you know, to train monks and engage with them. Because you have to talk a lot and you have to give them attention and discuss their problems. And what he has done, he does quite little teaching for the lay community because he feels that there's many outstanding teachers out there anyhow, particularly on YouTube, podcast. So he felt he wants to dedicate himself for training monks, but he does that. So for the lay community in Malaysia, they're very generous and they don't actually expect that much uh, teaching or any activities, they're quite happy to offer the food and then they get an anumodana and a roster of monks giving a short teaching. 
So it leaves him uh, most of his energy and strength you know, to focus on training the monks. An incredible harmonious and uh, friendly. And I noticed in some monasteries where they have a very strong hierarchy and strong authority, and then you visit as a senior monk, I think sometimes the junior monks are a little bit shy asking you about personal questions. Because imagine at work, would you ask your boss to discuss your personal problems? Not really, no? because you would feel that puts you in a weak position that to someone has got power over you. So I think that if monks have the perception that the senior monks are mostly in a holding kind of power, it may make it more difficult to open up about your genuine meditation issues. But I think the way Ayasma Ayadamika is teaching is very much how the Buddha recommended it, like a father. And a father now also uh, has got a certain amount of authority and has to look after the kids and you know, also you know, exert some authority, particularly when the kids are doing something that, that's dangerous. But it always comes you know, from love, from uh, genuine matter. And usually kids notice you know, that uh, parents you know, really have this kind of unconditional love, even if they occasionally correct them. And as a result of that, that they really have that relationship and also a very communal decision process. I was actually amazed when I joined the Sangha discussion. Someone brought up the suggestion that in the scheduled period they introduce another 45-minute meditation in the morning before the meal, which would push back the meal another 45 minutes, which is major thing if you're an empty stomach and you have just walked twice up and down Damagiri and having it 45 minutes later and it's going to be quite a major thing and also pushes back other duties throughout the day and I asked my and um, participate in the discussion and argued that it wouldn't be a good idea and to keep it on the old schedule and then they had a vote and with one vote the 45-minute uh, meditation actually won, and then they introduced that. And I was quite uh, amazed that they even outvoted uh, their teacher. I would have been a little bit shy in a guangzhai, as I say in, in Thailand. Uh, so a kind of respect and shyness uh, to such an outstanding man who sacrifices so much. And after he expressed his opinion, I, I wouldn't... I don't think I would have been able to do that, even being senior. I'm much senior to nine was a senior to him, I would have felt too shy to do that. But anyway, now this is also a very um, concentral leadership. And I think the result is that the monks now feel extremely confident and they see a senior monk, a visiting senior monk, now really as a spiritual friend. Senior Kalyana Mitter, and uh, they were very interested in talking to me and uh, asking advice on personal issues, on their meditation. I think part of that is his very consensual leadership and also uh, his great kindness and uh, fatherly love, basically. Uh, very impressive. And he must have a considerable power, me, because he took over a fully developed monastery physically. And Ajahn Bhante um, Agachita did an excellent job in building a monastery in this tropical forest. It's really designed for this very humid, hot climate. And when he came, so physically it's all fully set up. And his talent now is in the developing community and training monks. He ordained originally in Myanmar with Paok Sayadu. And he has been in Thailand, including Spain, I think, Fuvasa, and Wat Banana Chart, but visiting other places. And then he was also, can't remember, two or three years in Sri Lanka. I think mostly in Nauyana. So he has genuine experience in all three traditions and connections. Sri Lanka mostly in Nauyana. Yeah. He has a Sri Lankan monk with him as well, two Malaysian monks. 
Sri Lankan was the next senior one. Okay, I'll give you a break. If anyone has more personal questions, I'll still be here. But I don't want to become too boring. If you have to go or have important things or need the bathroom or it's getting too hot. I could continue 10 hours. It was a very rich experience. Very rich. Fantastic. <laughs>